Welcome to Ability Stories Podcast, where we discuss the successes, challenges, and stories of people with disabilities. I'm your host, Tara Briggs. To contact me, please send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. Hey, Ability Stories listeners. I hope everybody is doing well. We are getting about 150 downloads of podcasts. That is so cool. Hope everybody had a good Christmas. We certainly did. Marie is two and a half now, and so she was really starting to understand the whole Christmas thing, and she said she wanted a frozen castle for Christmas, so we, we got her one that actually plays fireworks, and she was in love. It was a production to put it together, because you've got me, who can't see the final picture of what the castle's supposed to look like, and then you've got Tyler trying to give me directions, and it was a production. And I had to use a butter knife because I put the wrong balcony in. But eventually we got the castle put together and, and she loved it. And it was just a really fun, fun Christmas. So I hope everybody had a good Christmas. I'm hoping this year to do two episodes a month. Um, I tend to kind of do them sort of sporadically, which probably won't change. <laughs> I don't know that I'll be doing the schedule, but I hope that I can get two episodes a month in. So my first episode of 2017 is my interview with Jonathan Mosen. Many of you guys who are at least in the blind community will will know Jonathan and like me you'll probably remember him from the old American Council of the Blind Radio days. That was really fun. And of course if you listen to our holiday special you'll know Jonathan from his book Lewis the Blind Christmas Elf. Um, I took the interview in a direction that Probably, I don't think anybody else has. <laughs> and was kind of nosy, but Jonathan has been so gracious with um, helping me with his time and advice on the podcast. And so when I talked to him about doing the interview, he said I could ask him anything I wanted. <laughs> um, Jonathan, one, two, three. And so we got on the subject of religion, which they say that the religion and politics are the two things you're supposed to avoid, but we didn't. I want to kind of tell a little bit of a personal story to maybe help everybody understand why I why I went this direction. My grandfather was born in 1901. This was my dad's dad, and he lived to be 101 years old. He passed away in August of 2002. And I was his youngest grandkid. I was born in 82, so that would make my grandfather 81 years old when I was born. And I've always been so grateful that he lived as long as he did, because I really got to know him. Growing up, I would go see my dad every other weekend, and my dad lived across the street from Grandpa. We'd go over there and have whole wheat mush with raisins. They were nasty. I'd swallow them whole. Never put raisins in cereal, people. And we would have buttermilk waffles. It was just a really fun, fun place to go. One of my favorite memories of my grandparents is I went over there one Saturday afternoon. My grandmother collected Victorian statues, and I, I love, I love Victorian statues where the women are wearing those enormous, huge dresses. And she would just let me touch them. So I'd go over there and just look at all her little statues. And I'd spend hours feeling every single detail. So one day I, I went over there. 
And Grandma had just woken up from a nap, and she said, where's Grandpa? And I said, I don't know. And then Grandpa came walking in, and she said, Joe, where have you been? And he said, well, I went to the store. I drove to the, he'd, he'd driven to the local neighborhood store. Well, the thing about Grandpa is Grandpa was blind at that point, or pretty close, from macular degeneration. He was somewhere between a low and a high partial. He, he would read large print with a magnifying glass, but he had no business going to the store. And uh, even if it was the local neighborhood store, he knew he shouldn't be driving. And Grandma said, Joe, you know you're not supposed to be going to the store. And Grandpa said, well, you're not supposed to wake up and find out. So, so I just, I have a lot of good memories of my, my grandparents. Um, Grandpa died in 2002, the summer after my first semester of college. And I remember we had a family meeting and he, um, we knew we needed to, to put Grandpa on hospice. And my sister started coming over. She and her five kids, they came over every day. And that summer for me is, um, is such a beautiful memory because my sister and my nieces and nephews and I were running back and forth between Grandpa's house and our house, and we just spent every day together enjoying each other's company and saying goodbye to our grandfather who had meant so much to all of us. The point of that story and how it relates to this interview is my grandparents were active, believing Mormons their entire lives. And some of their children, my dad among them, chose not to follow their faith. My dad is an atheist, and when I was preparing to do this interview, I asked my dad how Grandpa reacted when when Dad told him that he didn't believe in Mormonism and he didn't believe in God. And my dad said um, he was fine with it. And it never occurred to me that he wouldn't be fine with it. And the point of that is that in the summer that my grandfather passed away, what he wanted more than anything in the whole world was to be with his family and to die at home. And that's what he got to have because of the circumstance of my dad living across the street and our whole family coming and helping him. And I have often thought, what would it be like if my grandfather had, hadn't been accepting of his kids' different beliefs and hadn't been understanding? As you can hear, I've got a I've got a baby here as I'm as I'm talking at you. I've divided this interview with Jonathan into four parts. The first half of the podcast will talk about his growing up and his career, and the second half will talk about his atheism. He talks about his his crisis of faith, what got him into religion, and why he ended up leaving, and why he's an atheist. And then he ends with his thoughts on blindness. Um, I know it's a controversial subject, <laughs> but I have this to say in making the Ability Stories podcast, I've had two goals. I've had the goal of bringing hope and bringing understanding. I hope that people will listen to some of the interviews and will have hope that disability can be a pain in the butt, but it isn't the end of life and it isn't the end of happiness either. And I've also wanted people to understand um, people that are different from them. And whether you agree or don't agree with uh, the person's thoughts or some of the choices they've made, hopefully people can understand why. If you have ideas for a podcast or would like to be a guest on Ability Stories yourself to tell your story, I can be reached at abilitystories at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the interview.
Oh, look at you. You're sitting up, Ari. Oh, I forgot. Sorry. Yeah. Oh. Here, put, put your other hand right in there. There, see? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you like doing it that way. Okay. Turn on voiceover. You had this experience when you, well actually your family did, you weren't there yet. Your parents were greeted by a blind social worker and I love that because I felt like, um, I felt like everybody should have that experience. <laughs> um, talk about that, like how did that end, did you ever meet him? Yes, I did. In fact, when I became president of the blindness organization in New Zealand, he was still involved. And so I met him that way. And I think it is important because when a blind child comes along, it can be a pretty harrowing experience for a parent. It was a bit different in my case because I have an older brother who's blind as well. And so they were told then that it was just a one-off thing, one of those genetic quirks. So they weren't necessarily expecting another blind child, particularly given that they'd had three sighted children in between. But, you know, they, they had some idea of what it was like to bring up a blind child. Um, and in fact, I think it was when my brother was born that they first met this blind social worker. So that was really important at that stage because my mum and dad were quite young when they married and had children. Everybody wants whatever the perfect baby is. And when you find that it has um, a significant disability and you've never encountered that in, in your life before, uh, you've led a fairly sheltered life, I suppose, and blindness comes along, just seeing an adult coming into your house, feeling well-adjusted, maybe you know, drinking a cup of coffee, eating a meal, whatever, functioning, knowing that this guy is married, it all just helps a young parent to know, look, it's, it is going to be okay. You know, my, my blind child can do things and grow up to be a fully functional adult. Yeah, I, I remember also on your presentation, you talked about um, your parents had high expectations of you. They let you bonk into the rose bushes on the side of the house. Um, why, why do you think that happened? other than meeting a blind adult, because I think people who get raised with those high expectations, they grow up and become successful, and people who don't are going to struggle. I think part of it, and I know this now as a parent, is that by the time number five, as I was, comes along, and <laughs> there was also like nine years between number four and number five in my family, you're a little bit more relaxed as a parent. I remember when my first child was born, my daughter, who's now 20 she's going to be 21 next year and i remember every time she'd sniveled or something you know i'd be up and wondering what's the matter and if by chance she was sort of bouncing around when she got a little older and she'd say fall off the bed well it was like a major crisis by the time number four came along and you sort of pick them up give them a hug <laughs> make sure nothing was broken and move on with your life so i think that i, I was very lucky that I was number five and they were pretty relaxed. But also I think part of it was my personality. I've always been kind of uh, irrepressible. And sometimes I think that's just, it's just how you, the, the, the personality you're inherited with. Before I was a parent, I used to have this silly notion that somehow parents are like, kids are like this blank slate and that parents can, completely guide them and all the sorts of things but having had four children myself i know that 
they come out with their own little personality types and their quirks and, and, and stuff like that. And you can help steer things, but they still have their own tendencies, uh, whether they're, they're timid, whether they're sensitive, all those things. And I think I just happened to be somebody who was a bit tenacious and um, wanted to get out there and do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's awesome that you had parents that supported that. Yes. Um, and then you went, you went to the school for the blind, and you, you lived at home while you went. Yeah, I was very fortunate. My parents bought a house, and they're not wealthy people. You know, my dad was a poultry farmer and um, provided for us very well, but he developed heart disease quite early in life. He had his first heart attack in his early 40s, and the doctor said, you're going to have to slow down. And so uh, he worked in a range of jobs, always making sure that we were well provided for. But to actually make the decision to buy a house right by the School for the Blind was a really big deal and um, something I'm very grateful to them for because it meant that I could walk to school like any other kid and go home at night, which was really important, and enjoy family life. But the school that I went to, it was the closest school anyway, but it happened to be the school for the blind. And although there there are often incidents at school for the schools for the blind um, that that people um, are, are quite badly scarred by in some cases, and I'm no exception. I did get a good education there. So, what are the where do you fall on that? Where do you fall on that debate? Because and it's a really controversial thing. I think even today is, you know, do you send your kids to the school for the blind or do you mainstream them? Uh, I think that the trouble with mainstreaming blind children is that it's never very well resourced, at least not in my experience. I'm sure there are some parts of the world or states in the United States where it's well done, in which case that's fantastic. But it's different. Mainstreaming is different for a blind child than it is for somebody, say, in a wheelchair, where it's very important that the built environment is made accessible. So that might involve physical modifications to the building, and it might involve perhaps having a teacher aide on hand to help with uh, certain other things like toileting or whatever. But you see, in the case of mainstreaming a blind child, we're dealing with a completely different form of literacy that most mainstream teachers are not familiar with and are not qualified to teach. So we're talking a completely different thing. And often what I found in the mainstream environment is that Braille is only offered to the blindest or smartest of students because of the pressures that a lot of these teachers are under who have to spend a lot of time traveling from school to school to teach basic literacy to children. And, you know, if this was a sighted child, if you had a sighted child who was in front of a teacher who was a, who was functionally illiterate for much of the time, it would be a scandal. But somehow it's considered okay because the child is blind. So on the other side of it, though, if you have to send your child away to a school where they have to live in some residential facility and you don't get to see your child every night, then sure, that can really mess with family dynamics and can be very unpleasant at a different level. So I I do think that mainstreaming of blind children has to be resourced properly and it seldom is resourced properly. And I do salute all of those teachers who 
dedicate their lives to trying to help blind people learn. And in many cases, it's a calling. It's not just a job for those teachers. I know that so many of them go well beyond the typical hours that a teacher might teach to try and help their blind students. I always pictured the boarding school like Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And apparently I've talked to people and it wasn't necessarily like Harry Potter. And at such a young age, having to leave your family like that was pretty traumatic. Yes, well, of course, Harry Potter went to an English boarding school. And in some ways, I think some of the boarding schools in New Zealand are based on that English model because so much of what we have in New Zealand has been traditionally based on the English model. So it, it does make me smile when I read Harry Potter and think about some of the similarities. And in fact, you know, I, we, we did have quite a kindly principal in the early stages of when I went to the School for the Blind. And so I do see a few Dumbledore similarities there. Mm. Did, um, do you have any favorite memories? Um, I have a lot of very fond memories of music at the School for the Blind. We had a great musical education, and I remember being in the choir and um, taking practical exams with the Royal Schools of Music in, in Britain, and I went through and did um, you know grades of theory and practical and loved the musical side of things very much. We really had a lot of fun so music is the thing i really take away from that period and also actually i think because the class sizes were smaller we would have maybe seven or eight kids in a class we did get quite uh, attentive teaching um, i unfortunately got stuck with a teacher for three years who was um, abusive in a number of ways which i think kind of deprived me of some aspects of my childhood so uh, I've sort of come to terms with that. And actually on my blog a couple of years ago, I wrote a post about forgiving people who have hurt you and, and how how useful it is to go through that kind of process. So it wasn't always pleasant. And again, I was just so thankful that my mother in particular would storm into the deputy principal's office and say, you know, that this this can't go on, this isn't acceptable and had she not believed me, because it was my word against the teachers, unfortunately, and had my my parents not believed me all along and never doubted, you know, never accused me of making it up, then I really don't know what would have happened. Um, their belief in me was really important. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you had incredible, incredible parents. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I have. They're, they're, they're still both with us, and, and I'm I'm very grateful to them. Yeah, I, I was listening to you, a rebroadcast of one of your radio shows at like three in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I hope I got you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. And, um, and actually, I was I was listening to you. And then when you played a song, I switched over to audiobooks um, because I like listening <laughs> to you. But you mentioned that the parental units were listening. So, yes, yes, they, they still listen. It's really amazing because. They haven't had a lot to do with computers or anything like that. Um, but then when I started traveling extensively, particularly when I joined what's now known as Humanware back in 2003, and I was doing a lot of travel, um, a lot of it. And so my mother decided that she would join this organization called SeniorNet and learn how to use a computer so that she could email me and keep up to date. And then eventually quite a few years later, I said to her, look, 
Yeah, because she'd call me when the PC wouldn't boot or when it was doing some crazy thing or some Windows update had done something. And it was a hassle. It really stressed her out. And I said, you'd be far better off with an iPad. And she said, no, I don't want to change now. I'm used to what I have. And finally, I got um, I convinced her to take a look at the iPad. And she loves the iPad. And uh, she listens to Mushroom FM on it and um, you know, listens to my show every week and a lot of the other shows as well. And it's just amazing. You know, she's she's in her 80s and she's taken to this thing. Yeah, that's way cool. Um. I was, what happened to your, what's your brother done? My brother is, yeah, my brother, he is actually still living at home. So we, we are quite different. Um, he is very sharp, very intelligent, uh, keeps up to date with current affairs and that sort of stuff. Um, but he has, I suppose, had a number of, of challenges and just has, has sort of chosen to, to live at home. So we, we, we're different personalities in a lot of ways. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I just, I was curious cause you talked about him in your presentation and you know, yeah. reading Burrell and everything. I was curious what, what he's up to. Well, he, yeah, he played a great role in my childhood because he was always reading to me. He's a good braille reader. And so he was always reading stories or making up stories. And, um, uh, he also enjoys short wave listening and radio and things like that. And so, um, he he really did play a big part in stimulating my interest in a whole lot of things that I still hold dear. Yeah, that's really cool. You wanted to do radio, and you ended up doing that successfully for a number of years, right? Yeah, radio was always in my blood. I just, I think, I think a lot of blind people love their radio, you know, because it's a medium we can consume in its totality. And um, I listened to a lot of radio, and then. When I was about four years old, I started calling into this talk show. <laughs> and uh, one day, and, and I think people liked it, you know, because it was sort of cute having this four-year-old. And I was a precocious four-year-old, and so I would call in and talk about different things. One day, my parents got a telegram. And, uh, of course, we don't have telegrams anymore. Um, <laughs> I went with the telegram. was uh, You know how they used to write out the punctuation like stop, they used to put at the end of the telegrams. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how telegrams work, but um, I, w I wondered if the telegram was going to say, we, we want your son to stop, stop. But anyway, they they said, could could one of my parents call in uh, to the manager at the radio station? And so my parents had this big discussion about who would call because they thought that they were going to get a telling off. And I think it was my dad who finally drew the short straw and he called the manager of the radio station and the manager of the radio station said, when Jonathan's on, we get a lot of really good feedback. People think it's fun. And we were wondering if you would allow him to come into the studio um, at Christmas time and uh, come on the radio and do this show where kids can call in and talk about what, you know, what toy they want for Christmas and what they'll be eating for Christmas dinner and, you know, just sort of have a general kind of chit chat thing. Um, and so my parents sort of thought, phew, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not telling us off after all. And so they agreed that that would be fine. And I went in and did this. And I actually did it for about 10 years until I became a um, grumpy teenager. And it, it wasn't probably much fun for the radio station to have me there anymore because, you know, you, cause you get cynical at that age. Right. But um, 
for over that time, I actually did progress to the point that a few years in, I was operating the panel myself, you know, taking the calls and pressing the buttons and stuff, which was a hoot. And um, unfortunately, there are some incriminating recordings out there of me. And sometimes I listen to them, my sort of six or seven year old self and think, oi, but um, <laughs> you, should, you should post those on your podcast. We really shouldn't. Yeah, should. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, um, I have I have played them on the Mosin Explosion once or twice, a, a couple of little bits. But yeah, it, it was a, it was a mixed blessing because um, I mean I loved it and it was great to get to know some radio people. And the night before I would go in and do these things, I was just so excited I could barely sleep. It's just I loved it so much. But it also caused quite a bit of resentment among some of my peers and also the teachers who sort of thought, well, why is this kid being singled out for all this attention, you know, and and, um, and they um, treated me accordingly. But it, it was good. I, I always wanted to do radio. And as I started to think more seriously in my teens about a career, I realized that you have to make opportunity come to you. I mean, um, sometimes opportunity will knock if you're lucky, if you get discovered or whatever, but you have to put a big neon sign on the door to help opportunity find you. And so when I was a teenager, I decided the way to do that would be to take advantage of a provision in New Zealand's broadcasting laws then that allowed you to apply to the authorities for a temporary radio license. And it was a real procedure. You had to write this very lengthy document talking about everybody who would be on the air and what possible experience they had to to be on the air. And, of course, we were just a bunch of blind kids. So it was, I guess it was my first attempt at real spin. Um, but I wrote this on my, I, it must have been my Apple Apple IIe, I think. Uh, using Braille Edit, I wrote this massive application and um we sent it in and we got we got this we got this license to broadcast for two weeks during the school holidays we did it twice actually but the first time then we had to actually find out how we would raise the money and um to, to hire all the equipment because it was am and so we had to have a really big mast stretching throughout a field and all this kind of stuff so we thought, well, how do other radio stations do it? They do it through ads. Okay, we'll go out and we'll sell ads. And so we went out there and I said to all of the different um, people that we went to, shopping malls and you know, electrical appliance places and you name it, we went there and we said, look, we don't want you to we don't want you to give us money because we're blind. We want you to give us money because it's a commercially sound decision for you to make because there will be a lot of publicity about the station, which means we'll get lots of listeners, which means that you'll get lots of business if you advertise with us. And I think people appreciated that, that we weren't asking for charity. We were coming up with a viable business option for them. And we raised all the money to hire a firm, a proper radio firm to um, install all our equipment and um Another radio station donated a bit for the duration, and we got it up and running, and it was a really professional thing. Oh, that must have been such a blast. Yeah, it was a blast. And and then once we'd done that, I called every single radio person I could think of in management, you know, current hot radio personalities, and I said, hey, we're doing this. There were a bunch of um, kids at the School for the Blind doing this because um, you know, we're looking at radio as a career, and we want you to come out 
and meet us. And some came out and did shows, you know, special shows on there. Uh, and it was a kind of cool thing because people from normally rival radio stations were, were all doing shows under this one umbrella because it kind of brought people together. But it also meant that I got to shake a lot of hands and meet a lot of influential people so that by the time I was ready to um, try for a career in radio myself, I knew everybody and um, I could make calls and wander into people's offices because I'd done the work and everybody knew who I was already. Yeah, I, but I mean, I remember from your presentation, you still got, you still got discriminated against. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be prepared for that. <laughs> I, before all that, before I was really ready, um, I think I may have been a first year university student, possibly something like that. And somebody said, "Hey, there's this course that's being put together by this group of broadcasters, and all you have to do to." Uh, apply is send in a tape and so I put this tape together and sent it off and they called me back and they said that is a really good tape we'd love you to do this course and I can't remember how much they said it was it was maybe a couple of thousand dollars or something I mean, it was not cheap and I said I just don't have that kind of money right now so I'm flattered but thank you I'll have to pass and they called me back again and they said look we really really want you to do this course because we think you're going places so for you since it's you we'll give you um, <laughs> we'll give you half price and i said okay i can probably manage that i said look i'll come in i'll put a few braille labels on some stuff uh, get prepared and he said what are you talking about and i said well i'm totally blind and that's not going to be a problem you know i've worked in a lot of radio environments i just need to put some braille labels on the media so i know what's what and then we'll be good to go and he said, I oh, forget it. There's no point in, in doing the course since a blind person could never have a career in radio. Yeah. And then, and then you became his boss a few years Eventually, later. Eventually, yeah. Well, Program director of a radio station he was on. What was that? Did you ever, did he realize that, that he, you were? He must have realized. It's funny. You know, I don't think we ever openly talked about that. And um, sometimes I think that discretion is the best option. <laughs> Right, right. I, I, it must have been, it must have been painful though at the time that it happened. When you know you've got this great opportunity, and all of a sudden, it's just take taken away from you, uh, specifically because you can't see. Mm, and it was before human rights legislation outlawed discrimination on the grounds of disability in this country. So there wasn't really anything that I could do. Uh, I suppose it didn't overly, it annoyed me, but I don't think. I don't think it made me think, man, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe I, I can't work in radio because, of course, by this stage, I knew that, that I could. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's a, it was a lesson in some ways. You were managing a station, but then you, you changed careers a few times. Huh? Yeah. How, how come? <laughs> well, you see, radio in New Zealand became very deregulated. We had a bit of an economic revolution in New Zealand. So before... 1984, ironically enough, that was the year when things started to change. Um, we were one of the most regulated Western economies in the world. And if you wanted to run a radio station, actually only the government could run radio stations until 1936, uh, 66 rather. And then there was a, a group of broadcasters who went out on a ship to try and break the government monopoly from international waters. So it was all very exciting. Um, but then everything went 
in completely the other direction. So by the early 1990s, you could set up a radio station by buying a frequency if you had the money to do it. And frequencies were being bought and sold. And so it was crazy. Uh, radio stations at that stage were moving up and down the dial. The, the one radio station would be on one frequency one week and another frequency another week. And radio stations were changing owners because people thought, oh, a radio station, man, that's a license to print money. And then they got a radio station and found that it actually wasn't. Mm. So the bottom line is it was a really unstable environment to be in. And my then wife and I were thinking about having a family and um, I'd already been down and up the dial a little bit. And so I thought, well, I, I had also been involved in blindness advocacy as a volunteer since the mid-1980s, I had become involved in the Blindness Consumer Organization in New Zealand, and advancing the lot of blind people has always been really important to me. And so a position came up where I could assist blind people um, at the Blind Foundation, the provider here. And given all of the factors that it was a very unstable environment and that, yeah, this interested me too, I decided to go for that job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, I think a lot of times you get passionate about helping people who are in your same boat, so to speak. And it made me a better person because I met a lot of people who whose blindness was a very different reality from mine. And it helped, it broadened my horizons a lot, you know, because for me, blindness hasn't really stopped me from doing anything that I've wanted to do badly enough uh, maybe driving of course but most of my career choices i haven't um i haven't been Im impacted by blindness um, but then i got to meet people who became blind later in life maybe as a result of an accident or maybe because of age-related conditions and i met a woman it still sticks with me now who was in her mid-90s and she went to sleep fairly much fully sighted and she woke up totally blind mm. and she was a nun. And for the first time in her life, it questioned, she, she questioned all that she believed because she just couldn't understand what possible purpose God was serving in blinding her at such a late stage in her life. And it really made me think about how blindness is a major often initially at least, tragic event. And so it was my privilege to try and tell people that, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no denying that this is a huge loss and it's a massive change. And for many people, there will be a process of grieving and coming to terms with it, but it can be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, that's what I did before I had my family was working at our local center for the blind. And I loved, I loved watching people change. I loved watching people, you know, they'd go down the... the hall with the cane and they were walking slower than the, my childhood tortoise and then by the end they were doing a 35 mile jaunt around the city and bringing back a bunch of business cards and I loved watching them realize yeah. that blindness is a pain in the butt but it it isn't the end of the world and you can have yeah a happy it's, life. that's wonderful that you did that and I think if if we can go to sleep at night and answer the question what difference have I made today and you can point to something you did or someone you helped that just made the world even infinitesimally a better place, then 
I think we've fulfilled a useful purpose. And that can be in any number of endeavors. But to me, making a difference of some kind really matters to me. Yeah. And um, you're, you're in assistive technology now. So how did that how did that happen? You did ACB radio. I loved it when you were on ACB radio. <laughs> I was you used to fun. call in. Yeah, yeah, I did. And um, I, that was just, that was really cool. I, I, one of these days I'll have to have you, I'll have to read your book on doing ACB radio and have you come back and talk about it. But, and then from there you went to humanware? Yeah, well, one led to the other, really. Uh, I mean, I was glad to do ACB radio because it got me back into what I love the most, which is radio. And it was a new form of radio. I loved the pioneering element of, of working out what was possible with internet broadcasting. And there were a lot of technological challenges and new things to try. But then on ACB radio, I realized how much of a hunger there was for blindness-related technology content. And I used to include that on the show that I started even before ACB Radio called Blindline, which was the first international talk show exclusively for blind people. Yeah, I love that show. (laughs) Well, we used to, I mean, when I first started it, even before ACB Radio, we would have people actually making international phone calls to New Zealand because the idea of having this show was so cool, they didn't mind spending some money. And in the late 1990s, international phone calls were not that cheap. So that was cool. Well, we love that. And then um, what I found was that technology was starting to unduly dominate BlindLine. And I didn't mind doing some technology stuff, but there were other things to talk about besides technology. And so I thought, okay, we're going to split this up. We're going to do BlindLine, which talks about all the other aspects of blindness. And then we're going to do a two-hour technology show every week called main menu and when i announced this a number of people said oh no you're gonna break everything yeah leave it alone um but of course main menu is still going and main menu was exciting because it predated podcasts so it was much harder then to produce technology content and get it out there for audiences to consume than it is now because Everybody knows about podcasting and they can search for keywords like blindness technology and find things. So we did that. And then um, people tell tell me in the industry that they used to sort of wait quaking for the main menu reviews of whatever (laughs) latest technology they had produced. And one day I got a call from um, Pulse Data International, as it was known then, which is the New Zealand company that, that sort of humanware was a subsidiary of in the States. But I'd known Russell Smith from Pulse Data since I was a kid because it's a New Zealand company and they used to have me test some of their stuff like the old Keynote products and stuff. And they said, we are we are quite keen for you to come on board and manage the blindness products. And I had never really thought about doing anything like that. Mm. But what really, well, two things sort of coalesced, three things really. One the exchange rate was going horrible between the United States and New Zealand and ACB radio did not pay well. Um, And that was okay in the early days because of the exchange rate between the US dollar and the New Zealand dollar, but it was getting much harder to um, pay the mortgage basically. The second thing was that um, uh, I was not happy with the direction that the Chris Gray uh, administration was taking the organization and it was getting harder and harder to stay silent about that um, while other people around me that I admired and respected were leaving. And the third thing was I really liked the idea of being involved in making something, of actually 
coming up with a concept of, of being in such an, a, a privileged position that I could um, come up with a, an idea and see that idea turned into reality by really talented, capable people and then getting it out there and, and seeing blind people use it. So it was, it was the idea of producing something and making a difference in that way that really made me think, okay, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sell up and we'll move to Christchurch and we'll try this. Yeah. And, and, um, did you like it? I was pretty shocked actually. Um, <laughs> the, the first the first day and I met with some of the people there and I went home and I said I I think I've made a terrible terrible mistake <laughs> I was uh, I was overwhelmed because I mean in in 2003 when I took it on the braille note really was starting to fall behind and they had a very strong market share but um there there were a number of um things that I had this great big list. Okay, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to add this functionality and so on. And then I learned about some of the technical limitations of the platform mm -hmm. that wouldn't make a lot of those things possible overnight. And so I realized this is a much longer game than I had appreciated. And so not long after that, uh, we sat down and I had to convince the uh, senior management of the board, essentially, of, of uh, Pulse Data, that we needed to start work on the next generation of Brownote, and it was going to cost seven figures, and that mm -hmm. became the Brownote in Power. And I was pr I was proud of the Brownote in Power because um, it, you know it did it did help the Brownote to catch up and stay relevant, but also we launched that without a single leak. You don't often get in assistive technology a media release that says, hey, we've got this cool new technology and it does this and this, and then in the next paragraph it says, and it's available today. So often you get technology that's that's signaled six months or a year even before it's available. But yeah. we didn't mention the Brown Note Empower until the day it was on the shelf and you could order it, and I'm really proud of that. Um, and so... No one knew it was coming until about two days before the 2005 conventions, and we really rocked the industry. So it's something I'm I'm very proud of, and I'm proud of the product. I think we did pretty well with what we had. Yeah, I I I, I, I had one of those. I loved it. My favorite thing about the Braille Note um, was that initial display they came out with oh that was the most glorious braille display that they've ever had i was so sad when i guess they couldn't get the parts for it yeah they changed supplier from Teeman, who were doing the braille cells then to oh. kgs and um i forget now all the details about why we did that but there was a very good reason um may have been cost i can't remember now but yeah i i, I know what you mean the Teeman cells were kind of at uh it's a different kind of surface, and I think the fingers ran over the cells a little better. Um, yeah, I, I remember yeah. the review you did on the Braille Note, and you said something like, it's hard for me not to become mushy over this over this Braille display. And I was like, I know, I love that Braille display. And then the rubber cursor. Flower language on my part. But yeah, no, it was, it was good. It, um, and and I'm, as I say, I'm sure there was a jolly good reason. I wish I could remember what it was now. But yeah. Um, but but yeah, we added some pretty cool functionality to, to the Empower and, and beefed up the processing and stuff like that. But, um, uh, you know, a lot, a lot. It was a very, it was a very difficult time, uh, obviously not long after. So we launched the Brownhead Empower at the end of June. 
I think it was the 28th of June we got that release out. And then uh, in early August, Russell Smith, the CEO and founder of Pulse Data, died in a light plane crash. Mm. And um, that was uh, a very bad time. Um, it was a very bad time. And uh, so it wasn't really quite the same after that. And you, you went on to Freedom Scientific, which is where you're at now, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I... Uh, actually, we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of the FS Cast podcast. I'm producing the 10th anniversary now. So I joined Freedom Scientific in September of 2006. And that was insane, man. I mean, um, hopefully you were out of the blindness sort of um, internet loop. But there were like... I was, actually. Yeah, ACB, <laughs> Radio, did a, <laughs> <laughs> so ACB Radio did a whole show on this on... Um, they they published an article in Access World about it, which I think they sort of rather wittily called the Mosin Excursion. Um, and uh, it was all over the lists. And luckily there wasn't Twitter, or, well, there was Twitter barely, um, or Facebook then. But it was like, you know, one blind guy uh, goes from one technology company to another technology company. And for some reason, you know, it's, it's like an act of heresy or something like that. So it was a very weird time. But I was... Um, I was excited, you know, I, I've always had a lot of um, admiration for JAWS and what really, you know, there, there are a lot of very talented blind people who work there that, uh, that keep the products um, as viable as they are and, and there would not be um, a number of blind people doing the job that they do if uh, it weren't for JAWS. I'm very proud of that. And I remember going there sort of when we were negotiating to Florida and sitting in Eric Damry's office and Eric is sighted. But he sits there with his screen off and he uses JAWS mm. you know, on a daily basis to get his job done because um, it, it helps him understand the product. And wow. uh, it's, been, it's been a great experience. Yeah, that, that's funny. I didn't know you got so much pushback from switching oh, from one man. company to another. That's hilarious. And I'm still not really sure why. I think people sort of felt that somehow um, it was a traitorous act or a treacherous act to go from humanware to freedom scientific. And I'm still sort of scratching my head thinking, well, what, why? Uh, people move from technology company to technology company all the time. You see executives who go from, say, Microsoft to Google or, you know, Google to Apple or whatever. Um, and there's just a little sometimes depending on the profile of the executive. And I do ex ex accept that I did have a high profile at humanware so you know sometimes you see a paragraph or two and it says so and so has um, just been appointed as whatever at this new company and that's the story but this was just like ongoing outrage about it you know <laughs> it's, just quite, it's really odd to be the center of something like that well you were you were on the humanware hold lit uh the hold music and once you um once you left you weren't there so maybe that was it that everyone <laughs> When they were waiting for technical support, everybody didn't get to listen to you advertise. <laughs> I remembered. That really? Was, yeah. I didn't. Know, I I don't remember being on the hold music, but it was a long time ago now. So that was in the U.S. on the hold music in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. If you were when you were waiting on hold for technical support, you got to hear Jonathan Mosen's voice, and then once you and once you left. Wow. Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that was it. <laughs> um, maybe. I guess the other thing I was going to ask you. Um, about just doing careers in general as a, as a person with a disability is 
Um, do you have any advice for people that are struggling to either figure out what they want to do or struggling to find a job? Because one of the things that I think um, you have to have, anybody has to have, but especially if you are disabled, is you have to have someone that will believe in you and give you a chance. I agree with that, but I also think that someone, first and foremost, has to be yourself. And it's a hard one because you do have to be willing to open your heart up a little bit to constructive criticism. And sometimes it can be very hard to know um, what's constructive criticism and what's just misinformation. And if somebody tells you a blind person could never do this job, then chances are they're somebody that you don't want to listen to. But if you can find somebody who's in the industry that you want to work in, um, say radio, for example, and you send them a tape, uh, and that wouldn't be a tape these days, and they come back to you and they say, well, yeah, this is good, but um, there's something here in your delivery that you might want to consider, or perhaps you're not fluent enough or too hesitant, then you, sh you have to learn, I think, which criticism to take on board. I also think that you have to always have the end goal in mind, even when it may take you some time to achieve the end goal. So, for example, when I was a kid, I'd listen to uh, radio broadcasters reading ads on the air or reading news on the air. And I thought to myself, well, how am I going to do that? And I realized that Braille was my ticket to working successfully on the radio. So I would practice reading out loud as wide a range of material as possible, sort of shut myself in my room and I would just read and I would practice at being fluent and I'd even record myself and I'd play myself back and say, oh gosh, you know, this is not fluent enough. Um, what can I do about that? And I kind of developed my own braille reading style that allows me to to read it at, at, at fast enough speed that I can narrate documentaries or read commercials or uh, these days more often than not, you know, read a script that I might have prepared for an audio tutorial I've worked on or something like that. So you have to think, I think, strategically and realize that um, you know, no one owes you anything. And so you, you, unfortunately, you do have to prove yourself. Thank you for joining us on Ability Stories. Please review this podcast in iTunes. To comment on this episode, please go to abilitystories.podbean.com. If you have any show ideas or would like to be a guest on Ability Stories, send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.